Welcome to Travels Through Time, the podcast made in partnership with Unseen Histories. Petermore. Today we're venturing back to the Orkney Islands to catch a glimpse of a fascinating Neolithic settlement and to ponder what this means for us today. Today's guest is the writer and the archaeologist Neil Oliver, a figure well known to millions across the UK and beyond for his television series about the past. While his television work, especially on the BBC's coast, has caused him to roam right across the planet, Oliver retains a particular affinity for his Scottish homeland. This land of hills, glens and locks is filled with riches for the historian and the archaeologist, and perhaps nowhere has a stronger appeal than the Orkney Islands in the distant north. Here, as Oliver explains in today's episode, is the site of Skara Bray, the best-preserved Neolithic settlement in all of Western Europe. In this episode, Oliver reflects on the life and the enduring mysteries of Skara Bray. But first of all, I took the opportunity to ask him about his fascinating new book, A History of the World in 100 Moments. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Neil Oliver, it's an absolute treat to be talking to you today. Welcome to Travels Through Time, our little podcast about history and all matters um, time travelling through the past. And it's just a pleasure to be talking to you again. The occasion of our conversation, of course, is the new book, The Story of the World in 100 Moments. Um, we've spoken a little bit about this book um, already, uh, which is just out in the shops now. It's, it's a great, big, broad look at our human past. And you said it was the hardest book you've ever written. Do you want to tell us a little bit about the book and the process that brought it about? Sure, sure. First of all, it's great to be talking to you again. I've been enjoying our conversation so far. So it's just another opportunity to uh, take it a bit further, see where we see where we get to. Uh, the book was uh, it, it was written in lockdown. Um, as it turned out, I know a lot of people found uh, lockdown uh, very productive, especially the beginning of it when it was a novelty. I think a lot of people reported finding it a time of great creativity and they had you know the peace and quiet and so on. I learned that I work better in a busy, noisy house. I've got three kids and I'm, I'm not actually there at the moment. I'm in a holiday house as you speak to me, but but my kids are not far away. And, I, and the, the, the constant in and out of my office, interruptions, other things to do, busy, normal life, uh, I found, as it turns out, I need that as part of the, I don't know, as I suppose part of the adrenaline that, that, that powers me through a writing project. So I found this one slow, slower than normal. Um, but it was also difficult because I had embarked upon something which, I mean, to write a history of the world uh, is always a, you know, that's a monumental task for anyone. And I'm not a historian. I'm certainly not an academic historian. I'm a history enthusiast. I'm an archaeologist. And I love, I love my history and I love, you know, my, my shelves are lined with, uh, with history books. And so what I decided I would do was, it's really not, it's not intended to be a history book, which is why it's called The Story of the World in 100 Moments. And I thought the way I would do it uh, was to imagine uh, 100 
what seemed to me salient stepping stones from then to now. I started uh, with the advent of writing because I thought for history, that's that seems like the perfect place to begin. And some of the moments will be instantly familiar to readers. Others, I hope, will be they'll be encountering some stories and some characters for the first time. But they they seem to me the stories that that, that give some kind of uh, illumination to how we've got from you know how we've travelled through five thousand years as as a species. Uh, it's supposed to be eclectic and idiosyncratic. They're very much my choices and. I would hope, amongst other things, people reading it might say, but you've not mentioned this and you didn't mention that. And, and thereby other people might compile, consciously or not, their own hundred moments that seem to them this, the, the moments that tell the story of the world. But, it, but nonetheless, it was Herculean. Really, once it was easy to write the title, The Story of the World in a Hundred Moments. Uh, but when I sat down to trying to uh, decide on the hundred, it was just massive. I suppose... I, I, I quickly alighted on maybe maybe 50, but winnowing down the last 40 or 50, whatever it was, <laughs> it was massive. I, I was almost head in hands with, with the enormity of what I had taken on. Uh, and it was partly collegiate. Uh, I submitted my typescript and the, the editors came back and said, we really think the book would benefit from mentioning such and such. One, one editor who looked at it said, you haven't mentioned football. Surely, you know, that's the biggest unifying sport on planet Earth. Can you really not have some mention of it? Which, And I thought, no, you're probably right, but I'm just not a sport person, so that's not the way my mind works. So it was collegiate in as much as there were a few uh, stories went out and replacements came in, and hopefully, hopefully the hundred that are there uh, do the job. It always been my fantasy, really. I like, I like reciting. I always enjoyed... From when I was a little boy, I used to enjoy memorising poetry and being able to recite from memory. And it all for a long time, I thought, how brilliant would it be if you could stand up and almost as a party trick that tell the story of the world in 10 minutes in some clever way. Uh, so it, the book, that was another thing that it served. It, it's the realisation of that fantasy, because I thought if the time comes when I'm maybe out touring this book, I'll basically have to stand up and across an hour or two tell the story of the world. I thought, yeah. well, that's almost, that's almost a, a ludicrous idea, but would be fun Would be fun to do. Well, hopefully there's a bit of a kind of synergy with what we try and do here, because when I try and explain the podcast to people, I often say it's a bit like a parlour game. So kind of imagine probably an October night where you're all sat around together in um, some pre-digital reality where you can, you know, provoke people into into imagining the past and that's exactly what you do with the book and a good a, a good example really of how your book is a very personal story or a personal selection I should say is the fact that there are the big moments of history there you have Jesus Christ you have Muhammad you also have Caesar crossing the Rubicon for example mm. but then um, one of your last ones is a story I wanted to ask you about which is about a little girl in red which is a story that probably no one else in the world would have picked, but it makes the book individual to you. Could you? I'm, I'm, I like to use, or I do use the word haunted when I, when I uh, try to explain what history and archaeology mean to me. And there are certain stories that I've encountered over time that have haunted me they, in that they don't ever go away. And things that I see maybe from one day to another, I'll, gl I'll glimpse something and it, 
it makes me think about that 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 story. And I'm I'm very aware of the recurrent image of a little girl in red. Now, anyone who's seen the Donald Sutherland movie, Don't Look Now, it, it, there's a little girl, they've lost, he's lost his child and, 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 and he seems to keep seeing a little girl in red. I won't go into the details of what the plot actually is. And then, of course, in Schindler's List, the only moment of colour or the only dash of colour in that epic movie about, about what happened to the, to the Jewish people in Europe in the 20th century, there's a little girl who flits through the, uh, the Warsaw ghetto, seemingly overlooked by the adults. And she seems to get away, but she's just this flash of colour. You know, she's wearing a red duffel coat kind of thing. And then, and then she turns up later on amongst the dead, still in her, in her red coat. So, you know, you, she hasn't escaped. So even, you know, the idea that childhood innocence might have escaped the Holocaust is, you know, is burst like the rest of it. And so there's, uh, that, I, I do believe, it's not me, I think there is an, a, a recurrent image of, through, through storytelling and fiction of a, of, of a little girl in red as, as representing something, something ephemeral and fragile. Uh, and maybe emblematic of that which is good. And I, when I was uh, doing the, the research for a, for a television documentary series and book about the Vikings, we, we spent some time on uh, an, an island in Lake Malaren in south central Sweden, uh, an island called Björko. It was, a, it was a, a Viking trading port a thousand years ago uh, or more. And it was abandoned for reasons not particularly clear, and, uh, and and it was perfectly preserved. Nobody bothered to live on that little island again. So the, the preservation is amazing. And something that was discovered there was the buried in a place of of the highest honour, really, on on a, on a, on a perfect plot, but in a cemetery overlooking what would have been the town of um, Berka. Uh, it, it was found the, this skeleton of a little girl and it's especially tiny the, the the archaeologist had the had the prescience to to remove the entire block of soil in which he had begun to find her and it was taken in its entirety and 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 picked apart elsewhere and now the remains of this little girl are on display in a museum and you go and see her and, and the skeleton is almost bird-like it's reckoned that she was you know maybe maybe between six and ten years old but very small very slight, uh, and when her skeleton, and in particular her skull, was reconstructed, there was some evidence that she might have suffered from some or other syndrome, which may have been caused by her mother drinking alcohol while she was carrying her. But the little girl might have had a quite a distinct look. Her eyes might have been wider apart than normal. Uh, there may have been a bigger space than usual between the top lip and the nose. But she would have look, you'd have looked at her and thought, oh, unusual. And given uh, where she was buried in the cemetery, it, it was imagined that she was someone of some significance. And the most expensive colour at the time to make for fabric was red. And th there was a brooch found on her in a rib cage, which would have been pinned to a dress. And an assumption was made that if she was so valuable and, and of high status, that dress might have been red. And in beside the beside where she's displayed in the museum, there's a little uh, maquette, a little uh, a little representation of her, um, and, the, and the little figure with a strange ethereal, 
feature, ethereal look about her, is wearing a red dress. And ever since I encountered her, I've been haunted by her. She, she's, I think about her often, Birka girl they call her. And I'm also, I connect it in my head with, and this is where we get to the, to the little girl in red, who actually features as one of the moments. I trained as a, as a cub reporter, a training journalist in Lockerbie. The newspaper that I joined was in Lockerbie. And it was in, it was, I joined in, in 1991 and Pan Am 103, the, the terrible, you know, uh, terrorist atrocity that the bomb exploded inside a jumbo jet and the plane came down over Lockerbie. It was in 1988 and the Lockerbie inquiry was still going on while I was training as a reporter and I did some time covering, you know, sitting in on the, on the inquiry, just sitting, taking notes and write, you know, writing up bits and pieces of story. And of course, because of that, I became aware of the little girl in red. One of the one of the bouquets that turned up, and there was a. I mean, if you if you remember the the floral tributes to Princess Diana that filled you know around Kensington Palace, something similar happened in Lockerbie. There was a you know huge deposit of of, of flowers in, in in memory and in grief. And one of them had a card on it that said to the little girl in the red dress who made the flight from Frankfurt so much fun, you didn't deserve this. Uh, God bless. Chaz, signed by someone called Chaz. And when you unpick the story, it turns out that one of the planes that connected with Pan Am 103 uh, had, had, had flown from uh, Frankfurt to London and a family called the Rattans uh, had joined it. They should have been on an earlier flight. Their flight was delayed, but and one of those tragic coincidences meant that rather than the flight they should have been on, they got bundled onto Pan Am 103 and they died along with everyone else. And the, the one, the little girl of the family was uh, Suruchi Rattan, which was three, and she was an Indian family, and she was wearing like a little red shawar kameez, you know, the, the little red trousers, little red top. And she'd obviously sort of bonded with this American passenger called Chaz, who was on the flight as far as London, with her. And then he got onto another flight and Saruchi and her family got onto Panama 103 and they died. And, and I'm haunted by that idea of the, that little girl uh, because the Panama 103 atrocity, you know, it was, you know, a decade and more before, uh, you know, the Twin Towers. But it, 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 has, it has a bloodline that connects it, you know, the idea of a plane, you know, causing so much horror and so much death. And I often think about, you know, to the little girl in the red dress who made the flight from Frankfurt so much fun, you didn't deserve this, God bless Charles. And I, 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 to me, that little girl, and it's a long, it's a long rambling anecdote, but she represents something about, um, if we are to matter at all as a species, we either all matter or none of us do. And we are also from a hunting lineage as a species. And as hunters, our eyes are caught by bright things, sparkling things, or like magpies. We see we see things because we're, we're born to hunt. And so something like a little girl in a red dress is, is just instantly eye-catching. And she, it, within the story of, 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 the, of the world in a hundred moments, you know, her passing, I think, has to be acknowledged and remembered because she's only one little girl, but either we, we all matter you know, each life weighs the same, or none of us do, and that's yeah. a long and rambling she, anecdote. But that's who the little girl in red is. No, no, she's no, it's, it's a few things. It's an affecting story about an individual, but she seems to represent, as you say, something more than that, which is maybe the kind of person who doesn't always feature in the central, you know, 
motorway of history as we as we charge through it but actually like kind of is representative of or representative of a much kind of wider experience than maybe some of the narrow historical events are because we're much more likely to you know kind of empathize with her in a way yes i i i do hope so i i i try to make a conscious memorial to to, to some people and the fact that you know she's connected in my head to the to the little burka girl, the little Viking girl, strange little bird of a thing that, that obviously in her short life she mattered so much to the people that she left behind that they, they gave her a very expensive burial and they placed her in a in a in a, a site of great honour, so that you're left wondering who she was. But it seems self-evident that she was loved, and she's connected therefore in my imagination with with the little girl who died aboard Panam 103. Yeah. And I suppose one of the allures about this, those both those stories is the stories are not complete. History isn't straightforward and clipped at the end. It's messy. It's complicated. I know right at the top of this, you made the point that um, you don't see yourself as a professional historian, um, rather someone who's enthusiastic about the past and wants to convey the past um, to people today. Now, it's kind of interesting to me that you have become more active as a commentator on contemporary culture, maybe in relation to things like independence movements or lockdowns. And um, it's something that I've been thinking about as someone who, you know, similarly is is enthusiastic about the past and tries to write about it. And I wanted to ask you, do you feel as a form of responsibility or a feeling of responsibility for those of us who do spend our times burrowed away in libraries or reading about the past to 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 bring the benefit of our knowledge and perspective um, to today's culture, or do you think it's very much an individual thing? And um, uh, do you well, yes, I do. I think I can only answer. Well, I can answer that by saying that my interest in history it comes from my interest in the present. You know, I'm, I'm, my my connection to it is because I, I wonder, and I've, I've answered some of the questions for myself over the years, but I can remember wondering, you know, why my mum and dad lived where they did. Why, you know, we lived in Dumfries growing up. I just don't know how that happened. It's a kind of an arbitrary place to be. Um, and my dad did the job that he did, and, mom, and my mum did the work that she did. And I had sisters and I wonder how that happened. And, and so that made me interested in my in my parents and then in their parents. And then I discovered, you know, then I discovered that both of my both of my grandfathers had, had survived the First World War. And that was hugely significant to me because I thought, God, the First World War is something that is so massive. And you tend to think of it as having happened to ghostly figures from long ago. They're all gone now. There's no surviving veterans been for a lot of years now. But for, for me, realising that the men who, who survived to make the people who made me meant that the First World War was family business to me. You know, both of my grandfathers were hurt. My mum's dad very badly. He was lucky to survive. And I thought, God, you know, if that bullet that hit him had taken a slightly different path, I just wouldn't be here at all. So I, I kind of took the First World War personally. You know, somebody had tried to kill both of my ancestors in separate incidents. And if either had been successful, I just wouldn't be here. And, and so as in, I'm interested in the I've worked as an archaeologist and I have worked as a journalist. And to me, they're the same thing. Journalists dig to find out what's going on now. And archaeologists dig to find out what happened 100 years ago or 1,000 or 10,000 years ago. And so the two are, in, are intimately interconnected to me. 
I'm interested in the past because I'm very interested in today. And I know that what's happening today will become, is history. And what the period that we're living through is big. You know, the, the changes that are being wrought on society at the moment by all that's going on around the world. And it will take time before we even begin to understand what it is that has happened in these past couple of years. I love that sense of you being um, almost the quester. I, I know you've written um, in a previous book about your desire to get back to that first page in the human story. Is like, uh-huh. That's a kind of point that you're never going to get to, but it's a great pursuit. And um, the, 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 fut- the futility of, of even hoping is what makes it attractive. You know, uh, you know, man's reach must always exceed his grasp. Browning, whoever it was, you know, that that inspires me. It's the, it's the idea of you know, you're, before you even embark on it, you know you're not going to get there. Yeah. And that quixotic aspect to it makes it even more appealing to me. Yeah, that connection between the journalistic instinct and the archaeological one, though, is something really to think about. Let's get on to the business at hand, though, because we've got Mm -hmm. somewhere to go today. And uh, to get there, I've got to ask you the question, which is, if I gave you the opportunity to travel back through time and you could pick a year, we're not going to go for a calendar year here, because that would be a bit too tricky. But what what have you picked? What would you like to to go and see? The, well, the reason I was keen to take part in this particular format that you've come up with for this podcast is because I get asked this question a lot. I'm sure archaeologists do. You know, that I get asked, if you had a time machine, where would you go? So, I thought, oh, yeah. <laughs> I've, I've thought, I have thought like this before okay. uh, under, under the provocation of a question. And where I would go, and this is the genuine answer to the question, is Scarabray which is the Neolithic village on West Mainland uh, in Orkney, which is the archipelago off the, off the north coast of Scotland. Okay, and before, and before I get you there, what, what is the, um, the kind of chronological, I know it's difficult to say exactly, but whenabouts? Notionally, we're go, I'm going to go with, let's say, let's, it's very, let's say 2200 BC, okay. because, or, 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 or either that or maybe 2500 BC because it would appear that that was when Scarabray was abandoned. Scarabray is a long story. It, it seems to have been lived in for 600 years. And when it was, when it was first established, I mean, it's older than the golden age of China. Uh, it, it's, it's earlier than the, the first cities of the Harappan civilization in India. Yeah. Uh, it's older than pyramids. This is two millennia before, I don't know, Socrates, isn't it? This is a long time. And it's out, geographically, it's out on the edge of what we would consider to be the world. Mm. You know, it's and and it's it's fascinating that that so much sophistication was was being attempted and was happening in, in what seems to us as a very peripheral place. Okay, well, let's just it seems, to, it seems to have come to an end. Let's say, let's say for the sake of it, let's say two thousand five hundred BC. It seems to okay. have, no one was living there anymore. Perfect. Um, I just, before we go into um, the village and settlement itself. Let's can we just talk a little bit broadly about where we are in the human story at this point? If we say 2500 BC, um, it feels like a tremendously long time ago to me. I suppose it's not, I don't know what archaeolo- an archaeologist would say, they might think that was yesterday or something. Um, but is this kind of in that cusp between the Stone Age and the Bronze Age? Am I about right there? Is that, uh, yeah, yeah, yes, at the time, you are right, because at the time, now you have to. The, the, that three-age system between Stone Age, Bronze Age, Iron, it wasn't 
the, the, the boundaries between stone and bronze, bronze and iron, they, they don't happen everywhere at the same time. Yeah, it wasn't like on a Friday. There's, there's, there's transitions from one technology or one way of living to another, and it happens wide. I mean, it happens across a, a, an unimaginable depth of time. People people began domesticating crops and animals somewhere in the territory we would think of as the Middle East about ten thousand years ago. You know, it's a long, it's a, and, and it didn't, it didn't, it took thousands of years for that technology to reach Orkney. Mm. That, that move to farming after you know millennia of hunting and it wasn't abrupt i mean you, people didn't stop hunting on the friday and start farming on the monday these it, it, there's a blurring and it, and it, and it's it spreads like a, like a patch of damp across a wall and, yeah. and at that kind of speed really um so and then it, yes as you say in, in answer to your question there the, the time of that i'm interested in of the of the abandonment or, or the coming to an end of the way of life that had that had been at Scarabray for 600 years which is a long time it it coincides with uh, when life was changing on Orkney for for many different reasons and you would be getting in, you are in the territory there of 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 metal you know, metal is coming, and different ideas are there. Uh, and there, there, it's the, the abandonment of Scarabray may have been caused because uh, after a long periods when people lived in self-contained village communities, able to look after themselves, make their own decisions, you know, collect as as a kind of a big extended family. Let's say there seems to have then been a change possibly driven by climate change which was which may have made the living harder on Orkney around that time and it may but it may also have been exacerbated if you like if that's the right word by the emergence of of elites okay so where there had been maybe uh, just isolated villages doing their own thing getting on with it growing their food raising their kids there may have been the rise of a kind of a, an elite class that wanted to take collective control and tell people where to live and how to live. So that, that's what that's why that, that date, that, that coming to an end of Scarabray is so interesting because it, it seems to overlap with a time when Orkney and Northern Europe were, were on the cusp of change. Well, we're, we're, we're lucky to have listeners um, everywhere, America, Australia, and India, everywhere. Let's do a little bit of geography and, and explain where actually... Orkney, where are we talking about? Can you give us a kind of geographical picture of this settlement? Yeah, I mean, if you can picture, if you can picture the British Isles, if you can picture that long island with the with with the island of Ireland off to the west, separated from the Long Island of of, of England, Scotland, and Wales by the Irish Sea. If you look uh, north of uh, the north coast of Scotland, there's a as a little scattering of islands. In fact, there's two. There are there's a little scattering of islands, and then slightly further north, there's another one. They're like dropped breadcrumbs floating on the sea, and the 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 one that's more southerly is Orkney, and the one that's slightly more northerly is. I, rem- I remember this great description you had in in the Wisdom of the Ancients, which is the other the other book um, we we spoke about when you said one of these islands belonged to fishermen that farm, and the others belonged to farmers that fish. And I thought that was that's a, right. A wonderful the the Orcadians are traditionally described as farmers who fish, and the Shetlanders are 
fishermen who farm, <laughs> which just gives you that slight where their where their hearts really lay, yeah. or, or that which they depended upon most for their for their culture and their and their food supply and all, all the rest of it. And in, as I mentioned earlier, we have a perception. If you look at if you watch the weather forecast in Britain, Orkney and Shetland actually sometimes appear in a box. Mm. You know, they're, they're actually like they, they pull them down because they would be kind of out of the picture. So they kind of stick them in a box and pull them into the view. Usually and, with quite a, a rain cloud over the top, I suppose. Yeah, so. yeah. And you, <laughs> you're invited to think that Orkney and Shetland are just out there where the buses don't go yeah. out on the edge. But and, and the, geographically, they are peripheral now, but it, it, at different times, different places in the world have mattered. We're in Britain now. We're preoccupied with the southeast of England, mm. you know, because London's where the, the monarch is. It's where the parliament is, where all yeah. the decisions are made. It's that southeast corner is where the mass of the population live, mm. and it's tempting to think that that's always been the important place. But archaeological evidence demonstrates pretty conclusively that around 3000 BC and for, a, and for a long time, maybe for a thousand years, up until about 2000 BC, Orkney really mattered. Mm. The first henges ever, that, which is to say those circular monuments, which are ditches with banks, uh, the, the earliest that we know about are on Orkney which means that whatever that was about, a science, a religion, a combination of both, a means of understanding the cosmos and our place within it, it occurred to people in Orkney before it occurred to people anywhere else. And then it spread like an infection, like a virus, down through the Long Island of Britain, so that you wouldn't have Stonehenge and Avebury, the, you know, the iconic prehistoric monuments. They simply wouldn't have existed had it not been for whoever on Orkney thought the way to understand things is to build these circles. And the, and the, the house form of Scarabray, you know, when, when we get into it, the typical shape is, if you imagine, they're kind of kind of rectangular. It's a big room. Each house is a big room, not quite square. And the corners are rounded, like the, like the edges of a playing card. You know how you, they're, you, know, you, you get sort of softly rounded corners. Yeah. And they, they also used, they, they dressed their houses so they would have a, a when you were in the door, which was a crawl space. You had to get down on your hands and knees and crawl into these houses. You'd be confronted by what they call a dresser, which is a stone, a set of stone shelves, which were presumably for display. People were putting the equivalent of their wedding crockery on it, you know, mm. things of value, so that you were confronted by the family wealth as soon as you came through the door. Um, that configuration is mimicked in Neolithic settlements down the Long Island of Britain, so that you get to somewhere like Durrington Walls, which is a Neolithic settlement, uh, which was occupied during the heyday of Stonehenge. Although they were building the houses of different material, which is to say timber, they've got, they're kind of square, kind of rectangular, with rounded corners, with dressers, timber. They're also using the same pottery, grooved ware pottery, which was invented on Orkney. It's a style, you, you, uh, it, it, you, you, you make the pottery mimic um, something that's been made from uh, like reeds, it's called a skeuomorph. You're 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 using a different material, but you're mimicking uh, features and characteristics of the of the earlier thing. So you continue to make something that looks like oh, woven reeds. Yeah. 
yeah. by by mimicking its look on. So that that seems to have been the inspiration for Groove, where and it, it, the oldest of it is an Orkney, but it's at Durrington Walls and everywhere else in between. It's fascinating it's dynamic to think of things it, coming. It's so contrary, as you say. To it's, it's funny. Um, it makes me smile because it's it's almost like IKEA. It's as if it's as if Orkney was the original IKEA, and they came <laughs> up with a set of furniture that everybody ended up wanting. <laughs> and it's I'm, trying to, I'm trying to think of the the flat pack kind of uh, cartoon that would appear. In well, the flat pack was was the idea, <laughs> was the understanding that travelled in people's heads, yeah. and so it, it seems that idea of maybe was somewhere important. But there are places up there that we call Ness of Brodgar, uh, the Stones of Stennis, the Ring yeah. of Brodgar. That the people two and three thousand years BC, even in Northern Europe, would have known the name. Mm. They would have said. Let's let's go to the way we would go to Canterbury or yeah. to Westminster Abbey. These places on Orkney would have had names that were known because these were places that people, to some extent, wanted to get to, like meccas. You know, there were places of with a magnetic pull. Mm. And although they appear peripheral and out on the edge to us now, well, it wasn't always like that. So um, let's go there. I mean, this is a great, a superb setup. Um, we give you this kind of three scene um, sequence to go through. Let's go and have a look at Scarabate. Where would you like to go? Let's let's let it live before it kind of falls a bit. Very much so, yes. So um, where would you like to go for your first scene? I mean, just give us what would you what would you choose first? I. It's in the nature of, you know, because as we say, we can't be precise in the way that you would be about you know picking a year of relevance in the second world war or whatever i in my in my time machine that people often offer me uh, i would just want to be an invisible observer the what was happening at scarabray that way of life so long ago you know getting on for five thousand years ago is so different from us that the opportunity to just be invisible and watch a day in the life would be like watching, you might as well be watching people from another planet. And I want to smell how they smelled. I want to listen to the talk. You know, the the language, the language that had, that had, that was manifest in in Orkney at that time has roots that go all the way back to, to the Indian subcontinent. You know, so you're looking at at languages, you know, that, that have some of their deepest roots in Sanskrit and travel with the people who eventually, are, are, you know, are, you know, are, are in that part of the world, and and the, that, that's the antecedents of uh, Cornish and 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 Irish Gaelic and Scots Gaelic and and British, you know, the British language that was spoken before the Romans came with their Latin ways. So I'd want to just, even though I wouldn't be able to understand them, I'd just like to hear the the crack, hear them talk, and watch them going about their business. And they, they they lived these sort of visceral lives where they were they were they were surrounded by by their nature in in the way that a fish is surrounded by water, and the houses at, at Scarabray now they, they they appear like they've been burrowed into a hillside, but in fact they were because they were being built and sort of leveled and rebuilt over hundreds of years. They started out as freestanding structures, but then they packed them around with their own waste. In Scots, the word is midden, midden material. So the food waste, everything you can think of. So it must have stunk to high heaven in terms of our sensibilities of, of how it is to live. 
so that you know, so that life in Scarabray and these houses would have been lived in a kind of a, a, a steaming fog of humanity, of unwashed bodies, you know, all all packed around, and it was it was done deliberately because it helped insulate the buildings. Life in Watney is tough. It's cold. It's a challenging climate for a lot of the year. So they packed they packed their own mess and waste around it to help to help insulate it. How would these? I'm just thinking. Um, how would these humans have been, or these inhabitants of the settlement, have been different to us today? Um, their sensibilities. We, you sensibilities. Know, these, are the, these are the people. These are the people. I mean, their circumstances differed unimaginably from ours, and the way they thought. You know, these are the people who built the monuments, like the standing stones at Stennis, like the Ring of Brodgar, the Great Chamber Tomb of Maze Howe. And you can't stick a shovel in the ground in Orkney without hitting archaeology. It's just, it's peppered and littered with archaeology of the Neolithic in particular. You know, that, that, that time of the first farmers, it's thick on the ground there. And the way they understood the world, you know, they, they made sense of it by, in some way that, that manifests itself in the creation of these huge monuments. You know, and, and the, you know, when they, at, at Brodger, Amongst many things that have been noticed about it, you know, some of the, the stones were brought to that place from all over the archipelago of Orkney, as though people from far-flung communities made their contribution to this monument by bringing some of the bedrock of their patch, so that so that collectively the Ring of Brodgar is is Orkney as one, all brought together. And to, just to, I want to be amongst those people and say, what are you doing? How is it that you understand the world? Well, I, what I was um, just thinking about then is that in your archaeological work and in your writing, you often um, go looking for these very transient moments. It might be the hint of a footprint or just you might see a place where something has subtly been worn down over years with like repeated motion. Is there any, um, I know we have the, you know, the, the structures that remain. What evidence of the people remains? Is there, is there little glimpses we can, you know, catch? Yes. Yes. I mean, for, for example, the, the, the houses that are entered, there's, there's about 10, there's 10 houses there now, the remains thereof. Uh, there may have been many more. We may only have the surviving fragment of something much larger. And in each case, there's a, a very low door that you have to get down on your hands and knees and, and crawl through. It's probably all part of, you know, the insulation, keep, you know, keeping drafts out, you know, you keep the doors as small as possible. And then, as I mentioned before, you're confronted on the back wall in front of you with this dresser. And the dressers would have had on them things like the, there's, there's enigmatic carved stone balls from Scarabray that no one understands. The, the, the size of a, of a cricket ball, carved and shaped, and there's no consensus as to what they were for, but let's imagine something like that, one or two on the dresser. Um, maybe, um, maybe uh, you know, other items that were working with whalebone and they were working with stone, uh, they were working with organic materials. So the, 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 although we only see the stone and, it, and, it, and it's tempting always to think of a sort of, you know, meet the flint stones as if, you know, they just, everything was stone. Everything would have been softened with an organic element that hasn't survived, you know, furs and, and animal skins and fleece from sheep and all the rest of it, softening it, bedding. But you'd walk in and, and always on the right hand side, there's a slightly bigger bed 
It's like Goldilocks and the Three Bears. And on the left, there's a slightly smaller bed. And the assumption is that of the husband and the wife sleeping on, you know, that, that the big bed's the man, is the male bed and the smaller bed is the woman. But each house is configured in this in this way. And it's a form that, that, that persisted in Arcadian society right up into remembered history, the, where the bedroom was split like that, so that the, the husband had a bed and the, and the wife had a bed. They weren't necessarily sleeping in the same bed. So there's, these things have, you know, have, have echoes that go all the way back to the Neolithic. Um, they they would have been uh, they they had they raised cattle and sheep. Uh, we know that they grew barley, you know. So they were, you know, f- they were farmers of both animals and of cereals. Uh, we know that they they caught fish. Uh, we we know that the, the whalebone featured because uh, by the time of the building of Scarabray, wood would have been in short supply if there ever really was much in the way of tree cover on Orkney at any point. There certainly wouldn't have been much by then. So it begs the question, you know, what did they use for rafters, you know, for the big structural elements? You know, so were the whalebone, you know, was there a whalebone form as, as the structure for a roof? What was it roofed with? Well, right down into the modern era, homes or not, they were, were roofed in seaweed and turf. Or was it stone? It may have been tiled, but with big, you know, because the, the stone of Orkney, the, the, the way they were able to, the, the way they used it for building the big stone circles, the, the bedrock is a kind of a sandstone that naturally splits. So it's like the perfect Lego. You can build anything you want with it. So they may have they may have used thin slabs as, you know, so tiled, tiled roofs on, on the structure. So they had a, you know, they, they, they had a rich life. You know they had a you know they had a life of home comforts. There would have been fires. There fire. There square settings for a fire in each house, built of stone. They had flushing toilets. Believe it or believe it not, there were um, in each in each house. There's a little kind of cubby hole, a little sort of chamber, into which you can crawl. And they would have you know they would have done their toilette in there, and then with a bucket of water. They flushed the waste out into the into drains, and there were drains with seawater running through them that would have carried the waste out to the sea. You know, so you know, so they were they had kind of indoor plumbing, if you like, mm. five thousand years so ago. What you're, what you're describing is is a society or a settlement in in any case that's reasonably advanced. There's technological but, progress. I mean, the thing about Wales is quite intriguing to me. I'm, I was wondering whether these might be um, kind of scavenged bones from Wales that might have beached. Could be. um, could uh, be. They could or, be. They could have been using driftwood from the same sources yeah, as well. Yeah, but that's you know. an, another great ponderable, I suppose. Yes. But it's, I mean, to walk through that settlement at that time. Um, there's, a, there's another glimpse that we, we should touch on in one of the yeah. houses. In one of the houses, I've mentioned these stone beds. Bed settings, really. I mean, if you imagine, like you know, uh, you know, thin slabs set vertically to d- to delineate a rectangular space that would then have been filled with softness of whatever, you know, vegetation, fur, fleece, whatever, to make a to, to make a soft bed. But in one of the houses, excavation beneath the bed setting revealed the skeletons side by side of two women. Okay, so two women, two members of the society had died, and we would obviously think about removing their remains and burying them or cremating them mm-hmm. elsewhere. But but for whatever reason, the, the way these people understood death, they kept them in the house and basically buried them under the bed. Yeah. And that's so different. 
imagine us doing that today. Imagine it, us retaining the, the the mortal remains of loved ones well, and, and keeping them in the house. It's, like, it's, it's so different. And yet, yeah. and yet, in many ways, it's better because we've grown so distanced from death. Mm, it's almost we're invisible, isn't it? And, we're traumatised by the very thought of it and professionals yeah. come and take away our dead. We don't want to see them. Mm. You know, the minute someone ceases to be alive, we kind of want them out of the house. And, and then we and we never really see them again. And the undertaker mm. prepares them and puts them in a box and that box is either buried or, or cremated. We don't see. But these people re retained a connection, a physical connection to their dead. Which I think in many ways is a more grown up approach yeah and probably avoid many ways a, a kind of trauma of uh, a kind of very sharp separation as you say because you know if something just vanishes one day and is never seen again that's in in itself quite difficult to to compute so and, we think um, of them as the primitives but in many ways i think they absolutely were not i think they were more they were more open and and in touch with and understanding of the the realities of life and death and if you're not properly in awe of death, you're not properly in awe of life. These people had it in the round. You know, the way that, the, you know, the chamber tombs that, that, that have been excavated or not and elsewhere, they were, the bodies seem to have been laid out somewhere else or maybe briefly buried until the flesh was away. And then the bones were collected and, and, and brought into these communal spaces, you know, where the, where, the, where, the, where the bones of the dead become one great receptacle of the, of the ancestors. And, the, and the, the, the tombs remained open, like churches. We, we talk about these tombs as if they were only about the dead, but that's like saying just because there are graves around a church, that a church is only about death. But of course it's not. It's about christenings and marriages, and it's about everything to do with life. And likewise, these, these that we call tombs, and we know that people were going in and taking the bones back out again. It looks as if they were probably taking the ancestors home from time to time or doing other things with them. So they were physically happy. They were happy to be in touch with the mortal remains of their dead. And there's such a richness about that, I think. We think we might we think that as disgusting, morbid, even perverse. But they were simply, the dead were, were around them and part of, of life, literally and metaphorically. And it adds so much to the, I suppose, the atmosphere of the place, which is as you say, very different to our own. I want to get now to your second scene, which is where having, um, you know, kind of sketched what we know of what was there, we encounter the mystery. So is this going to be, I, we, again, we can't say with any chronological certainty when this well, happened. Maybe you can, but um, tell, tell us what, what is the mystery of Scarabrain? Well, why did people stop living there? Because at the time people stopped living there, the houses were still serviceable, structures maintained. It, it looks more like a decision to go. For or a long abandonment. Time, yeah. yeah, yeah. For a long time, there still is actually, depending on who you speak to, there's, a, there's always been a sort of a folk tradition that Scarabrae came back to light in 1850. It was a huge storm. It hit the, hit the, the Bay of Scale, which is where Scarabrae is, and it partly exposed the, the ruins for the first time in thousands of years. And, you know, they were, they were subsequently excavated, having been revealed in that way. And there was a long tradition that there had come one terrible night, you know, 2,500 years ago, there was an apocalyptic storm and people fled. And they, they, it was all dressed up with, you know, the finds of like a broken jewellery, like a, a string of beads found in a doorway. 
and the, 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 the people at the site would tell you that this was a woman, you know, and she's, as, as, even as she's fleeing in the face of the storm, you know, her necklace is torn, you know, from her neck and her, maybe her husband comes back and says, leave it, leave it, and, and drags her away from the encroaching, whatever it is, sandstorm, the sea, whatever. Uh, Scarabrae was considered as a sort of uh, Orcadian Pompeii, yeah. so it had been not overtaken by, by pyroclastic flow, but by sea or by the sand. But that's, that, that's not what happened. It, the way of life changed. It was no longer deemed appropriate to live like that. And it, it probably, it, it wouldn't have been the case that everybody left the same day. There was just a turning your back on that way of life. Maybe the younger people, maybe there came a generation who didn't want to be, didn't want to live like that. And maybe the older people were left behind. And maybe, the, maybe that, that older generation lived out their lives in a scarabree that was no longer as vibrant as before. And the, the, another, the, 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 in the future, people lived in, rather than living in these communal villages, maybe 10, 20 houses all clustered together like cells in a sponge, they started to live in, in isolated single houses. So whatever, mum, dad and the kids have their house and then there's maybe half a mile to the next house. And they're... And that seems that there's, there's, theory, there's theorizing that Orkney as a whole was ruled by an elite, you know, a priestly class or a, or a kingly class or a warrior class. And they told people how to live. So it no longer mattered to be in your village. You were just the people of Orkney. And people, and it may have been to do with climate. It may have, the, 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 the fertility of the land may have diminished somewhat, the, the, you know, for, if it, if it became wetter, if, the, if there was more rain, if there was less available land for farming and it was less productive, that would, that would provoke a change in the way that people lived and, 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 understood, the, and understood the landscape. But so it's, it's, this, it's this fascination with the idea that there came a, a gradual period where what had been the right way to live for hundreds of years was no longer the way to live. And I'm endlessly fascinated by, you know, for example, we call Stonehenge, Stonehenge. And it, it, it's, it's because an early description of it was of the hanging stones, because the lintels, it's like these trilithons with a lintel, like a doorway. So it's the place of hanging stones, stone, the hanging, Stonehenge. But we don't know what they called it. Now people used Stonehenge and modified it for hundreds of years. And we don't know what it was called, and we don't really know what it was used for. Now, there must have come a generation who just weren't going to use that place for, for whatever anymore. Mm. But they must still have known what it was called, and they would still have known what their parents and grandparents had done there. And their children would have known that as well. But there obviously comes a time of forgetting where eventually you've got to a generation who, if you stopped them and said, those stones over there, what's that? They'd, they'd, they would have to say, no idea. What's it called? No idea. So Scarabay is the same. There has to have car time when, when people lived. There was a time, a long time when people lived there. Then there was a time of its decline. And then it's abandoned. And enough time goes by that it's lost. It, it, it was known, it's called Scarabay because... Before the storm of 1850 that exposed it, it was called Scarabra. 
which has various sort of etymological explanations, but it seems to be Norse words that, that basically talk about the, the, the bump by the reef. So it was simply a descriptive of a, of a, of a morphology, a bump, you know, maze how, the how of maze how, which is the chamber turn, how is a Norse word for a hill. And some of the same roots are in uh, the skero, sker how bray. Um, in any event, it's a complicated etymology, but long after people had known that there was a village there, they were, it, it just entered their, their language as the bump by the reef because they had forgotten what it had ever been. And I'm fascinated by the process of forgetting. Somewhere that was a, that was a civilization for 600 years, there comes a day when people don't even remember it was ever there. Yeah. I think that, I think that amazing. Yeah, it is amazing. And it, it also connects to something else that I've read in your writing, which um, directly connects to us today, which is all of us here alive now, um, apart from maybe a few kind of extraordinary um, examples will be forgotten about within four generations. And yes, if, if, you, great, if your great grandchildren remember you, that's as good as it's going to get. Their children won't know you ever existed. And this is maybe a sense that archaeologists have and are reminded of, you know, with their work about these, you know, the, these stories that have kind of come to an end and they have to be re examined and, you know, kind of burst back open again. But, um, you know, it's just a natural... It's so, it's so important to internalise that way of thinking, though, because we are so preoccupied with, with now. That, I mean, we're so wrapped up in today mm-hmm. and we're so wrapped up in how much life we can get for ourselves, you know, trying to extend our lives. Because most people now in the West don't really believe in anything. You're here and then you're gone. And it's all just about maximising your your own greedily held bit of life, your time, and trying to be a hundred years old with ripped abs and all your own teeth. You know, that's the that's the objective now. And it's so important to remember that no matter who you are and what you do, with all with only a handful of exceptions, come the time of your great grandchildren, they won't even know you existed. And that contextualizes and gives perspective to our aches and pains and our cares. And it also stands as a kind of different way of thinking about the past because we're so often schooled and we're always cautioned against this as a historians, but this idea that we're on a linear path, that things just kind of kind of get a bit better as the centuries as, as they mm. march by, you know. Um, but really it's what you're describing here is something which is much more um like a circle, maybe that something begins, it thrives, it prospers, it becomes maybe a superfluous, then it, you know, is eventually abandoned and then it's forgotten. So that's a kind of different mm-hmm. picture, but one which is maybe part of the rhythm of, of our world. Is that right? Yes, yes. You know, there, there, is a, there is a rise and fall. You know, there is a time to mm-hmm. sow and a time to reap. You know, there's mm-hmm. a, there, you know, there's a, you know, things like empires come, you know, the, the, you know, the, the, the Persian, the, 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 the Roman, uh, you know, um, Genghis Khan, and no matter how big they get, and the European Union, no matter how, you know, there's a, there's a sort of fallacy about, you know, things get too big to fail. But the experience of thousands of years of history is that things always fail. However big they get, they must fail. 
they oh. must come to an end. Nothing, no matter how grandiose, no matter how many people buy into it, it finishes. Mm-hmm. Everything comes to an end. And this is and then this something else, and then something starts and then something new something supplants it. That's just that's just the way of it. And and so with our second scene, just to condense what we've been talking about, it would be to catch this at the moment of change, you know. Yes, like, and it's not an apocalyptic event. It would be to be it would be to watch, I suppose, in time lapse, you know, like one of these speeded up things that shows a flower coming and then, you know, and and falling away. It'd be to it would be to, to time lapse, maybe across two or three generations around the time of 2500 BC when for a, probably a complicated cocktail of reasons people didn't think this was the appropriate way to live the past we don't do that anymore and and our parents and grandparents what they thought it wasn't right mm. and the time has come to live and more and more people switch to living in the alternative way until Scarberry is under the grass and gone. Hello, it's Peter here. For some time now, we've been working in partnership with the visual historian Jordan Lloyd. And in particular, we've been telling you about Jordan's latest colorization work, which is portraits of Martin Luther King or the Beatles, landscapes of Antarctica or architectural shots. One of my favourites is of the US Capitol building, for example. It shows it under construction in the year 1846 under a bright blue DC sky. It's something that you get from Jordan's photo that you do not get from elsewhere. Well, recently Jordan has launched a new project, unseenhistories.com. Unseen Histories exists to bring the very best of the past to life with the latest digital tools. You can find compelling new articles there, sets of mastered and colourised images and book extracts like that from Susan Denham Wade's A History of Seeing. That's in connection with an episode we did a few weeks ago. Well, this week, there's also an absorbing new piece of visual history there too. It's all about Victorian fashion, and I'd really urge you to go along and check it out. If you're interested, have a look. Unseenhistories.com That takes us nicely to probably the second part of the mystery, which is your third scene. The thing that I suppose the detective in you, the you know, the kind of questing journalist archaeologist that we spoke about right at the beginning would like to find out, which is um, maybe where did these people go? Uh, those people who built the great circles, the, tomb, uh, the tombs of stone, what was their new beginnings and futures? And I suppose um, it's, it's obviously, well, do you want to tell me like kind of what you think or maybe what um, science has exposed as an answer to these questions, well, archaeology? We have touched on some of it. The, the, there seems to have been some climate change. Uh, the, the Orkney may have been a kind of a, not, not Eden, but a, the, the, maybe the living was relatively easy there for a long time. And it gave people the, the spare time to do the things like the Great Henge Monuments, uh, Ring of Brodgar, the Ness of Brodgar, which is, the Ness of Brodgar is in between the Stones of Stennis and the Ring of Brodgar. And it, it seems to have been some kind of location where there were special houses, special structures in which special things happened. And, it, and it, it functioned in some coherent way for maybe a thousand years. And then it fell into, it just was abandoned. So there's all across Orkney, it seems that, that a way of life, which was deeper than memory, 
came to an end and it, it might have been provoked by to some extent by a, that life maybe just became harder and demanded different ways of living and there, there may have been the coming of an elite who were in control or they were seeking to, to have control. I mean, we see it now, you know, you see these things, you know, people are talking now, this very day about, you know, the return of authoritarianism and totalitarianism and, you know, you know, secretive cabals, you know, taking control of, of the world. I mean, that conversation is, is, is out there now. Um, but it, it seems that, that there was a, a change, that there had been a, a rise of a, of a new elite group who said, you know, we don't, we no longer live like that. We live this way now. And we're going to do these things and we understand the cosmos in this way and it wasn't overnight it, it was the stuff of generations and gradually they drifted away from the previous way of living and they took on a new way of living and and uh, there's some the the main work of excavation proper scientific excavation was first undertaken in the 19 the late 1920s by an australian guy called veer gordon child um, and he is a fascinating figure in his own right. Mm. There's something opposite about Scarabray being thought about first by him, because he's, you know, he walked to the beat of his own drum. He was a he was a Marxist, and back in Australia, he sort of exiled himself from academic circles because of his Marxism and his socialism. He, he fell from sort of polite society. And then he came, he came to Britain. First of all, he was in London. And then he became the, I think it's the Abercrombie Chair of Archaeology at Edinburgh University. So a professorship was created for him. And he came and, he, and from his base in Edinburgh, he then became involved in excavations at, at um, Scarabree. He thought Scarabree was Iron Age. He thought the people had lived there in the early centuries, AD. Mm. He got his timings all wrong. I mean, obviously he came from a time way before radiocarbon dating and such like. So his, his chronologies were all wrong, um, but he 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 understood what he understood of it, and he and he did the work, and he you know he he did the first excavations, and then he he also he was so disillusioned in his in his later years, um, and and believed that both capitalism and even the communist model were failing, and he was predicting in the nineteen thirties and forties. A descent into the, the the whole of Europe would descend into a new dark age. The people having been failed by the the sort of economic and ideological models of both capitalist and and communist, and that's strangely prescient, given that so many people at the moment are worried about what does all this mean? Where are we going? Mm. You know, the Great Reset. You know, is is society on, on the cusp of of of, of yet another? Uh, V. Uh, Gordon Child coined the term the Neolithic Revolution. You know, he believed that the that the, ch that the, the, the change that, that happened um, where people took on farming after all the millennia of hunting was, was nothing less than a revolution. And, and so he was setting it into the sort of chronology that then gives you things like, you know, the Industrial Revolution yeah. or, the, or the Soviet Revolution in Russia. These, you know, these, these moments of, of great, you know, uh, and it was he that came up with the idea that Scarabray had been wiped out overnight by a storm. Mm. That was his fiction. Yeah. This is this is the thing. Another gloss to the to makes the story, the whole story, even more fascinating. It seems to me that there's um in some ways it it, it survives 
um, as a site and as a kind of model of, um, or maybe a kind of standard from which we've drifted in, in a way. So I suppose the question I put to you is, is, is this a kind of settlement that's alive in your mind often when we come to moments like uh, lockdowns, for example, and you think of the separation of people and nature and things like that? Is that where, um, as you've written before in things like the wisdom of the ancients, that we we could actually benefit from thinking more about these places like Scarabray and maybe visiting them, I don't know, but um, at least keeping them in mind? I think so. I I get a great deal. I've written and spoken about it often. That I get a great deal of comfort and solace from looking into the deep past when the present is is troubling and filled with anxiety. I like to look back because you know you see that the same disruptions and the same things have happened again and again and again. You know, you know, like at the moment, a way of life that has seemed so permanent that it will always be there. They come. It comes to an end. And, p- and people start to live differently. And Scarabray is a kind of a memorial to that, you know, that people lived a certain way for a long time, and then they didn't. And we don't know why, but we speculate about it. And now we seem to be going through a period in the 21st century of maybe, maybe you know, we are being reset. Maybe we are going to embark upon a different way of living for, all, for a complicated cocktail of reasons. But if you're troubled by it, there's surely some solace in realising that this has happened again and again and again. And there, there are just generations who's, who, who's, who's, who get, they're dealt a hand of cards that is, you're going to live through a period of change. And then there'll be a long, then maybe there'll be a period of stability. People forget that change ever happens, but maybe we're on, we are the, the generation that's going to experience change or struggle on change. And if you're made anxious by it, well, you know, look, you know, look back. Scarabray, I do think about it. I think about it often. I, I, you know, I, I, it's one of the places that does, you know, haunt my imagination. As I say, I would love to go back and just sit quietly on the grass on a, on a decent day and just watch a day in the life of Scarabray and listen to them and smell the smells and hear the noise and see what they were, see what they were about. And there's a, the, the um, what's his name, um, that wrote Metroland, Julian Barnes. He's got a great line at the end of Metroland where he says, objects contain absent people. It's actually in reference to a set of coffee cups. And he looks up at the four cups and he knows that they represent four friends that drink from those cups. But objects contain absent people. And a place like Scarabray contains absent people. And when you go to a place like that, or when I go to a place like that, because... I'm not scientific about it. I'll, I, I use these places. I enjoy the way they make my imagination run. And I like speculating about them and, and what ifing about them. And sometimes I think of a scarabay as being like, you know, when you're, if you don't touch your computer for a while and it, it goes on a sort of standby, it just, go, it, you know, it, it goes into that little routine where it's protecting the screen. But when you come back and, you, you know, you touch the touchpad, it comes back. And if, I think if you go to a place like Scarabray with your imagination, you kind of, it's, it's, it, the, your presence there reanimates something about the place. But, or it does in my imagination, and I get a great deal of comfort from that. It pleases me to do that. However unscientific and fairy tale like that is, I feel that my presence there brings these places back on. 
And I'd, I'd say the same um, for people who are listening about the book as well, because um, the story of the world in a hundred moments kind of acts in a similar way, each of them being maybe like, you know, a little provocation, uh, being a bit like a brand, brand about, I thought of, you know, you plunge your hand in, you see what mm. comes out, you see what it means to you and you see how it maybe um, challenges uh, your thinking or confronts you. This has been a really fascinating conversation. I've got one last question to it. I didn't warn you about this, so you might have to do a bit of thinking on your feet. Um, mm-hmm. But I like to get a bit of material history. And if you could have brought... Um, a tangible object back from Scarabray in around, say, the year 2500 BC. Is there anything you'd like to have? You know, you could have it um, maybe on your own mantelpiece. I don't know. Is there anything in particular that you would like? I'll give you a moment to think about it. The, 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 the carved stone balls are, are an endless fascination because in all likelihood, we will never know what they represented to those people. So... I've actually got a, a modern facsimile of, of, of such on one of my bookshelves. But in truth, I've never really been, I am most moved by the everyday. Uh, yeah. uh, something like one of these carstone balls is probably to do with some sort of ceremony and a, you know, something that was used occasionally and, and maybe have, may have been held in some kind of reverence. I'm much more attracted. If I could have anything from Scarabia, I would want something like a stone tool. You know, something that was just of the everyday yeah. that, that someone periodically... It's kind of charged up free repetitive touching and yeah, use and it's just because it, You know, because it has that patina of of use about it that's that's made of the person who owned it and used it. So I, w- I would want something as basic as, you know, a, a sharp... A sharp stone knife, or, or, or similar. That I, I would like. I would like something that just speaks of the everyday, not yeah. the not the special days, not the not the high days and holidays. I would like something that had just been in someone's pocket yeah. for the whole of their life, and then one strange day it got lost, and then I would I would have it and thereby be connected to that person by absolutely the same thing. Superb choice. I'll repeat that that quote that you mentioned a few minutes ago. Objects contain absent people. And charged up within that tool would be so much of the personality of the person who'd used it. Well, mm-hmm. Neil Oliver, this has been for me an absolute treat. I hope everyone else has well, enjoyed it. Lovely. Too. It was love talking to you. Yeah, and I shall let you um, commence your holidays once again. <laughs> without any further. I'll go down onto the beach and catch up with my kids. <laughs> that was me, Peter Moore, talking to Neil Oliver about Scarabray and, of course, his new book, The History of the World in 100 Moments. It's newly published and, as you heard in our conversation, it's filled with a terrific range of stories from Julius Caesar right through to Saladin, from Elizabeth I of England to Harry Patch the last fighting Tommy. Do go and check it out. For those of you who would like to learn much more about Scara Bray, well, we'll gather up some of the best online materials that we can find for our website, which you can find at tttpodcast.com. We might also try a little experiment there later on in the week, putting up a few snippets of video from the interview for you to watch if you'd like to see our faces for a change. Otherwise, we'll be back next week, next Tuesday as ever. I just have to say thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. Goodbye.